Um, I know that previously I've been sort of running uh, so quickly <clears throat> through this this material. I'm still adjusting to a 35-minute Sunday school hour. Um, never had to battle that before. <clears throat> so I'm always coming with about five hours of material. <laughs> um, but we will try to uh, to do better going forward. But because of that, I have uh, not really given you much chance to ask questions until afterward. And some of you have asked questions, very wonderful questions. But uh, please understand <clears throat> that you should feel free uh, any time to, to do so. Perhaps we will have time today when we look at uh, the conclusion of this chapter, we're going to look at verses 43 to 49 of uh, Luke chapter 6, which again has to do with the cost of discipleship. That's, that's um, I don't mind that. That's, that's a moniker that this chapter has taken on, much like in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, which is five chapters, uh, somewhat similar. However, uh, that makes it sound like, uh, well, yes, if you want to go to the mission field or if you want to uh, go into full-time Christian service or whatever, uh, that's for those people. But I'm just going to be uh, your basic run-of-the-mill Christian. That is, that is a complete, uh, that is not true. This, this, is, this is Jesus giving these uh, instructions to these people in, in uh, Galilee and, and uh, in, in that part of the world in that day uh, who had one billionth the education that you and I do. Uh, one billion, the means that you and I do, yet he holds them to this standard. So this is for all of us. And where we have come, it, it begins in verse 20 of chapter six, this notion that, uh, that Jesus is teaching. And we've seen already uh, for three or four weeks now that it's a possibility that to be a Christian may mean poverty, hunger, sorrow, and persecution. Again, not only, I've mentioned this several times before, not only are we have, have to be in the, the wealthiest culture in the history of the planet, uh, but we are in probably the least persecuted culture in the history of the planet. Uh, it is not normal for Christians to be able to do whatever they want to do and, and uh, have churches on every street corner without any kickback. We think that's normal. <clears throat> and that's a great, great blessing. And a lot of that, frankly, uh, comes from the fact that we were, this culture was blessed by being uh, reformed, if you will, by people who were, who were men and women of the book, uh, men and women of scripture, men and women who thought that all of life should be formed out of the truth of God's word. And that has... Uh, that's why, frankly, among other things, we're extremely concerned for what will happen two days from now because we see very clearly that that assumption is no longer a valid assumption for the culture in which we live. Uh, sadly, tragically, uh, I remember six months or so ago, uh, I, I don't even know why, it, it must have been, uh, I, I don't know how, I was on the wrong channel or something. But I wound up looking at a man, he was a Republican, member of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. I, I don't remember what state he was from. 
but he was giving a speech on the floor of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., and he was alluding to God. He was alluding to the fact that what we are doing is making God angry. And he was followed by the man who happened to be chairman of the particular committee the Republican was a member of, uh, who this man was a Democrat, and he came up and he said, from the floor of the United States House of Representatives, he said, this body could not care less about what God thinks about anything. And he was met with applause. Uh, so things, uh, things are not as we, uh, unfortunately, as we once, as they once were. Uh, so this notion of uh, perhaps poverty, hunger, sorrow, persecution, especially the persecution angle, uh, if we continue to go as we're going, I have, I'm, I, frankly, I am stunned that that churches are still meeting in this culture without persecution. Uh, and by persecution, I'm thinking initially of government interference of one sort or another, some kind of red tape. Uh, goodness, 30 years ago at Westminster Seminary, I, I remember the day uh, that uh, the local township uh, came to pay us a visit and they said, look, we know you've got, you've got tax-exempt status, uh, but uh, we think you ought to start giving to the local municipality. And uh, that uh, we said, thank you very much. We can appreciate your sentiment, but uh, no, we're, we're taking the privilege the government has given us uh, to be a, a, a institution that teaches uh, and that is, is a nonprofit. Uh, but that, they then came back, one, one issue came all the way to the Supreme Court before we beat that one, and that was 30 years ago. Uh, so unless, uh, unless something very, very radically changes, we're, we should expect that again. And, and Luke is, uh, quotes Jesus as saying, expect it. Uh, don't be surprised by it, expect it. Uh, also, he then goes on to say, but... Whenever those things occur, I want you to be sure that you love your enemies, pray for those who abuse you, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, judge others carefully with their good in mind, and remove the log in your own eye before addressing the specks in others. And by that point, you just want to throw your hands up and say, this is, nobody could do this. And we're exactly right. Nobody can do this. This is a Holy Spirit-empowered uh, lifestyle that Jesus is talking about. It's always been that way. Uh, the Christian, uh, thankfully, has the Holy Spirit and uh, the means of truth through the scriptures and so forth. But unless that is being activated, uh, you will not do this these things on your own. And that's where we're going today. That's where Jesus goes next. Uh, in this concluding couple of verses is going to be the proof of discipleship is in the doing not just the hearing. That's the, going to be the focal point of these few verses that remain, uh, verses 43 to 49. They're in two sections here in Luke. The first one, 40, 43, 4, and 5, say a tree and its fruit. And the second one says, build your house on the rock. All of these, of course, are very familiar uh, propositions. But uh, in all of this that we've seen so far, and certainly... It's going to be emphasized in what we see today. Everything is either or. There is no middle ground. Uh, there is no uh, lukewarmness. The church in Laodicea 
I got a, a firm response uh, in the book of Revelation about that mistake. Uh, there's, there's no uh, take it or leave it about Christianity. You're either doing it or whether or not you've heard it is irrelevant. If you're not doing it, then you haven't, it, you, you're not the real deal. So that's what we're going to see. The first three verses, 43 to four and five, a tree and its fruit. Um, the beauty of it is by going to this botanical example, it is totally accurate. Uh, you won't see a dead tree bring in a bumper crop. You won't see uh, a plum tree uh, grow an apple. All of these things are total either ors. Uh, good fruit or bad fruit uh, are the only options. You won't see one tree, half the tree be totally rotten fruit and the other half be glorious fruit that's, that's wonderful to eat. All these, uh, and it's the same by the way, of building a house upon a rock or upon sand. Uh, you're either gonna have a sturdy structure from which you can build an edifice or you're going to have a weak structure and the first time the wind blows, it's coming down. So uh, what he says here, 43, 45, he says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Interesting conclusion there that we'll look at uh, in a bit. Phil Riken has a wonderful sentence here, very uh, compact. He says, the truest profession of our faith is the practice of our faith. Now, when you hear that, you think, well, of course. But think about that and look in a mirror and apply it to your own heart and your own actions from a day or two ago, even this morning, uh, and you will begin to see how, how stunningly um, lacking in wiggle room, that statement is. The truest profession of our faith will be the practice of our faith. In other words, whatever you're doing, I don't care what you're saying, but whatever you're doing is going to indicate uh, the degree of veracity of your faith. Every person produces fruit that is in our own heart. A good heart produces good fruit. A bad heart produces bad fruit. Now, when they say heart in scripture, uh, as you know, this is not just the physiological beating heart. Uh, this is the essence of the human being, the essence of who you are as a person. If that is good, it will bear good fruit. If it is bad, it will bear bad fruit. Uh, Self-examination is mainly what these three verses are about. They're not so much looking out. Now, what Jesus is saying is, okay, I've told you how to interact with those people out there. I've told you about loving your enemies. I've told you about doing good to those uh, who forsake you. I've told you about helping the poor and, and uh, this, that, and the other. Now I want you to look inside and tell me what you see. Uh, tell me what's there. Uh, so what does good fruit from a good heart look like? Well, probably all of us immediately think about the book of Galatians, appropriately, 
Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22-23 will tell us that we normally call it the fruit of the Spirit, which is an appropriate moniker. Galatians 5, 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And here we go again. Just about the time you think, boy, you couldn't... Thankfully, we're past that love your enemies because I don't know how in the world I'm going to do that. You think you're off the hook and then you say, okay, look into your own heart and see how much love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control resides there. Uh, And by the way, don't miss the bad fruit that came just before that. Beginning in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. This would be the person with a bad heart. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's the counterpoint uh, of of this uh, text here. So we're looking at... uh, the person who is going to produce good fruit because he or she has a good heart. This would be the Christian, the true Christian. Uh, I'm going to use a book. I didn't bring it. I know I I tend to do that and I always get a lot of grief for that. Uh, But uh, I love when I find a book that covers a subject really, really well. And there is such a book related to that It's not specifically going after that passage in Galatians, but it uses it as as the framework. And that is is a book that's simply called The Fruit of the Spirit by John Sanderson. I would really, really recommend uh, that uh, every Christian own that book. It's a a small thing, little paperback, uh, easy to read, extremely thought-provoking. But what Sanderson, the approach Sanderson takes throughout this book is he will pick one of those nine items that are listed in Galatians 5 and he'll discuss that fruit, uh, how you can work toward developing that fruit, uh, how you can fertilize the bush, so to speak, uh, to make it more yielding of love, joy, peace, and gentleness and all of those kinds of things. And then he will go in each chapter to discuss what he calls artificial fruit. Stuff that kind of looks like it, but in point of fact is not. Uh, When we were looking at those verses in Galatians 5 there that were so draconian, uh, the the evil heart, they were their thing until you got to the back of it where it starts talking about envy and jealousy and things of that nature. Uh, They seem to be so, such blatant sinfulness that you think, well, I don't have that problem. Read Sanderson and you'll find out that in point of fact, it, uh, it is much more subtle than that. Satan uh, has ways to, uh, to influence more than you would think. So here is Sanderson's first item of love. Uh, he defines it as essentially this, loving others, including my enemies, more than myself. 
Uh, we, you know, so often you hear the word love, you read the word love in scripture, and we, we have these, these uh, gushy, mushy uh, sentiments uh, in the culture running around. That's not love. Uh, loving others more than myself. Uh, that, we could talk about that sentence for, for a long, long time, loving others, even my enemies, more than myself, very similar to the earlier portions of Luke chapter six that, that we read about earlier. Here's his artificial fruit. Beware of hatred, resentment, and a critical spirit. Uh, hatred, that you kind of figure, okay, if I'm not a lover, I must be a hater. Uh, but uh, critical spirit, one who tends to look uh, for the worst of things, uh, one who will... Uh, will go rather than reinforcing and building up one who will look to tear down or criticize. Criticism would be another one. Resentment. Uh, resentment is a powerful, powerful motive in most people's sinful arsenal. And it is easy to be resentful for a lot of different things, but that is an indicator that when I am resenting something or someone, I am not loving them the way I need to be loving them. Uh, joy, the second item in the list in Galatians. Uh, Sanderson wants to push the notion of joy to be sure, but joy even in and especially in sorrow. Uh, so joy, obviously, if, if someone gave you very, very good news, you would be joyful. That's, that's not what, um, what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about uh, the ability to be joyful even in a context of sorrow. And that's why Sanderson's artificial fruit, he says, beware of focusing on blessings or the usual ideas of joy and reward. The focus should be on Jesus. He's saying there, and, and uh, I'm abbreviating, uh, obviously, painfully so, but uh, what he's talking about is where would somebody be able to be joyful in the midst of sorrow? I don't know, but one way to do that, and that's to be a Christian. You've got to be able to see beyond uh, a, a current event to know that there is an overall plan for me, a Christian, there is a God who loves me. There is a God who will send bad things into my life, but he will always do that purposefully. And that purpose will always be to my benefit, to my good. I may not see it. I may not be able to understand it. But if until I have a perspective like that, it is awfully difficult to be joyful in the midst of sorrow. Uh, I remember years and years ago, decades ago, uh, it, it was very, uh, it was personally uh, difficult for me because uh, a, a man who'd been an elder in the church I was born in and raised in, a uh, good friend of my parents, uh, that man, uh, I of course had the relationship of, of little bitty kid uh, to an elder, so I, I was never close to him, but he was always very, very friendly very knowledgeable, a very good man. And I, I simply enjoyed uh, being a crumb under the table when I would be around people like that. 
uh, and he died and uh, I was talking to uh, his widow, his wife, and, and we were planning his funeral. And I said, okay, uh, let me work out with you the hymns we're going to sing. And she said, hymns? We're not singing any hymns. Uh, how could anybody sing a hymn with, with uh, an event like this? And, and we had a, a talk at that point, and uh, we did sing hymns uh, at the funeral, but, uh, but even, even at a position, maybe even especially in a position like, like that individual is in, difficult beyond measure, to be sure, there's no, there's no question about that, and you're, you want to be empathetic, uh, you want to be supportive. You want to be loving. Uh, I don't expect joy in a situation like that. Not if joy we think of as, as giddiness, uh, laughter. Uh, that's artificial in a situation. Death itself, in, in terms of that particular grief, uh, that's, that death is, is an irrational intruder that is painful. It, it does rip apart things. It does leave gaps and holes. And there's nothing wrong with seeing it that way. But for the Christian, it's a portal. It's, it's simply a portal into uh, whatever individual has passed through it. That individual is, is free of the suffering uh, that he or she perhaps was in, uh, perhaps not, could be sudden, whatever. Uh, but nonetheless, and if that individual is a Christian, I'm going to see them again in addition to knowing that they're not suffering. So those kinds of issues can be extremely meaningful to me to help me get through it. Uh, not stiff upper lip stuff, that's not biblical either. Uh, there is genuine sorrow in that event, but that sorrow is surrounded by this kind of joy that Sanderson is talking about here. Uh, not, he says, not the usual ideas of joy and reward, but the focus coming on Jesus. Without that focus, joy in the midst of sorrow, uh, I don't know how, how that's possible. As you move to the third one, the word peace. Sanderson says peace when tempted to worry or anxiety. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of, of Sanderson's uh, wonderful insights in that little book is you will see uh, <clears throat> you will see all these words and you first, you think, I know what joy is, I know what peace is, I know what patience is. But Sanderson says, no, no. Uh, each one, he takes each one of them and says, you know that you have this when all of the trends would tell you not to be this way. And in the case of peace, uh, when you're tempted to worry, when you are in an anxious role, um, to be able to exercise peace uh, what what a uh, what a a difficult thing that can be, and his artificial fruit therefore is beware of carelessness, apathy, anxiety, jealousy, envy, those kinds of things, uh, which would be pretty uh, predictable. There, those 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 do not bring peace. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, parable of the prodigal son, the, the elder brother is just eaten alive with all of these things and he has no peace whatsoever. Uh, but um, peace when tempted to worry or to be anxious. The fourth category, patience. 
as we've come to expect now, patience in adversity. Not patience meaning I can, can sit and, and, uh, and watch you do something for hours on end, but patience uh, when I'm faced with adversity, something that, that is firing every neuron in my body to, to get up and attack, uh, being able to sit back in patience is what this particular uh, fruit is, is going to look like. Is artificial fruit, beware of impatience, and an artificial endurance. Now that's an interesting phrase. And Sanderson fleshes that out uh, in a fascinating fashion, but an artificial endurance, you know, stiff upper lip, um, I'll, I'll gut my way through it. All of these kinds of mechanisms that, that we think we have uh, do not bring patience. Uh, this, this kind of endurance Artificial endurance is going to lead to the negating of those of the aspects we already saw. You will not know joy when you are artificially enduring. You will not have peace when you are artificially enduring. Uh, so you will not be loving when you are artificially enduring. So this kind of patience uh, is an interesting category. Now the next two, interestingly, kindness and goodness, uh, the Greek there is very, very close, and Sanderson picks up on that and puts them together. Kindness and goodness, these two uh, categories of fruitfulness, he says, are both doing to make life better for others. Uh, sort of makes sense, being kind. You, you imagine uh, doing deeds of, of kindness or goodness for others. Therefore, the artificial fruit, beware of selfishness of pride, of rebellion, of willfulness, of unkindness, uh, not picking up on needs. In order to be a kind and good person related to making the life of others better, you've got to have antenna. You've got to be looking for this. You've got to be out of yourself. You have to be looking to the people you're, you're interacting with and looking for ways to assist, looking for needs they have, and then asking yourself, how in the world can I meet this need? Uh, that is what this kindness and goodness is speaking to. Now, faithfulness, faithful dependability to stay the course, artificial fruit, beware of half-heartedness, unfaithfulness, disobedience. Uh, so again, the faithful uh, person is going to be one that, that is tested for this. That's why when you read a list like Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit, it's, it's sort of an artificial, if you will, experience just simply to read it because you're not putting it in the context of living. It doesn't take but 10 minutes of any day in the world before you and I are influenced and impacted by any number of things that will be testing every one of these nine categories. And that's what... Uh, He's talking about here being faithful. Uh, yes, I can be faithful to the person who is going to reward me or who has, has never been but anything but faithful to me. But how can I remain dependable and stay the course when those things are challenged? Easy to become half-hearted, unfaithful, disobedient. Gentleness, number eight of nine. He says, soft replies and actions when encountering harshness. Interesting 
insight again. Being gentle, uh, we would, would think, well, I, I just, you know, I'll sit, I'll be nice and, and schmoozy. Uh, no, no. Uh, soft replies can be easy, but in the context of harshness, remaining gentle, not responding in kind. The artificial fruit, beware of self-centeredness, pride, bitterness, and anger, which would be the, the responses in kind. If you encounter those things, especially anger, uh, easy immediately to meet anger with anger. I'd say, all right, I will elevate my anger to the degree you are angry at me. If you settle down, I'll settle down. That's not what this is talking about. Uh, finally, self-control, resistance to temptation. Says, artificial fruit, beware of excess, lack of discipline, anger again, envy again, covetousness. By the time you get through these nine, you're probably, as, as I am, thinking about the Ten Commandments. These things resonate with the last six of the Ten Commandments in large ways. Uh, the ethical teaching of the Ten Commandments is fleshed out in the New Testament because the Savior, the Messiah, has come and fleshed it out in, in passages such as Luke 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, now, Sanderson makes a wonderful uh, statement, a caveat, if you will. Is it always this black and white? Which, if you're like me, by the time you get to the end of, of that, you think, oh my goodness, I'm toast. Uh, Sanderson comes back and says, is it always that black and white? No, it isn't. He says this, I'm quoting now, the key resource is to walk in the spirit. The Holy Spirit, by his dwelling within the Christian, provides the motivation, the power, and the direction the believer needs if he is to produce fruit and resist the antagonism of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is a cluster of seeds which grow and appear at their appointed time. That's a fascinating sentence. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, he says, are a cluster of seeds which grow and develop at their appointed time. I would love to sit uh, Brother Sanderson down and say, what is the appointed time? Um, but what he means there is because we are directed, uh, keep coming back to Pentecost, the, the importance of Pentecost is uh, completely impossible to overemphasize because at Pentecost, every believer is granted the Holy Spirit indwelling him or her. And that Holy Spirit never departs because that Holy Spirit is in us to do one thing and that's to bring Jesus's message when we need to hear it, that's the appointed time, how we need to hear it, what exactly we need to hear, that is the function of the Holy Spirit. Now, Sanderson goes on here, very important sentence. He said, it is only after the sun has shined, the rain has fallen, the weeds have been pulled, that the fruit becomes evident and can then be recognized as such. That is a very fruitful sentence. Uh, what he's saying here is, is these things are not, these, these little personality traits or whatever we'd want to call them 
Now, those are not glib little things that, that exist in a vacuum. They're part and parcel of, of how we respond and who we are, what our character and becomes and how it develops in the process of the Holy Spirit's kneading the dough, working in those seeds at uh, the appointed time. And once the rain has fallen, once something negative comes along, once the sun is shining, it's just as important to be able to react well in the great times in life as it is to react well in the not so great times in life. Then he says, they can be recognized for what in fact they are. Until then, they're artificial. Uh, he says, then exercise produces fruit and fruit bearing in the Christian life is just as exact a science as horticulture in a modern vineyard. Uh, what, he's, what he means by that is each Christian needs to be working toward these things. Uh, that is what is so, so tragic about uh, so much of American Christianity today uh, that, that pushes easy believism. Uh, just say a prayer, just uh, come forward at an altar call, um, sign your name on a statement, and your ticket's punched. And then you don't have to worry about another thing as long as you live. Nothing could be less biblical than that. And that is why three different occasions in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4, verse 30, uh, Paul says, don't be grieving the spirit. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, don't be resisting the spirit. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, never ever quench the spirit. Those are possibilities. The, the problem with those verses is they raise the possibility that I can actually do that. I can be resisting. Uh, I'll speak only for myself. I know when I'm on some sort of sinful tear and I know that I shouldn't eat the whole bag of Hershey Kisses. Uh, I'll, I'll take a soft, sinful example here. Uh, 